continuing a series called uh, our Remember series that we are uh, talking about who we are as a people. And so, so far in this series, we have, we have talked about a, a, an old prophetic word that was given to this church, to Lancaster Foursquare Church, which is the legal name of the church that you're sitting in right now. Uh, we call ourselves Life Church as our slogan name because that's a part of the vision that God has given us. Uh, but, but Life Church was a, a church that God said something to prophetically uh, in the 70s. And that was, a, that was a prophetic word calling this church to be a house of healing. So we've talked about what that means to be a house of healing. And we've also talked uh, about how our, our passion, like you heard from Sharon last week, is that our passion is for our community. So we have this initiative uh, and this heartbeat called iHeartAV. Uh, and by the way, reminder that if you buy one of these shirts, uh, they are $10. You can buy them out in, in the foyer, and if, if you give $10, you get a shirt, but then also your money for that shirt goes into the iHeartAV ministry. So that goes into our outreach ministries, into our community. Now, today, we're going to talk about our core values. So that's part of our part three of our Remember series. Today we're talking about core values. Now, if you're sitting here wondering what in the world is a core value, the dictionary would define core values as a person's principles. Uh, a value is a person's principle or standard of behavior or one's judgment of what is important in life. So every person in this room, every person who's listening to this sermon is a person with values. You all have values. The question is not do you have values, but have you chosen your values on purpose, and are they good values or bad values? You all have values. You all behave a certain way, right? You all, you all decided to get up out of bed today and come to church. That was a behavior based on a value. You all make judgments uh, about uh, the kinds of people that you're going to spend time with, about what you like, you all make judgments about what you don't like, about decisions and what sorts of things you want to shape and mold your life. So the question is not do you have values, but do you have good values and do you have intentional values? Like did you set your own values or has somebody else given you a set of values and you're just kind of living according to the way that somebody else thinks that you should live? Which I would actually argue that most of us in modern day America live according to a set of values that somebody else handed to us. Right? We, we value things we're told to value. We're very careful to, to say things that we're told to say. And uh, if we don't, we get canceled. And so we live according to a certain set. Uh, yeah, I said that. Um, uh, we live according to a certain set of values. Now, the, the values that we have determine the direction of our lives. Uh, James K.A. Smith he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and he actually unpacks this principle in his book about the telos, or the ultimate direction of your life, is determined by your greatest passion. And, and passions is another way to talk about values. So your values really reveal what you're passionate about or what you care the most about. And what you care the most about or what you're passionate about, or in our language that we're using today, what your values are will determine the telos or the ultimate direction of your life. Uh, you might be able to think about values like the bumpers at the bowling alley, like the goal of your life is to get, the, to, to get a strike, to hit the pins down. But the bumpers are what are the boundaries that help you make sure that you don't go into the gutter. Uh, maybe, maybe you could also think of values like horses. 
if you sit on a horse that's not tamed, it will take you somewhere. <laughs> and you might end up on your butt. But if you tame that horse and you're actually in control of that horse, it will take you to your desired destination. Right? So a value is a little bit like a horse. Hopefully it's tamed. Hopefully you're intentional about the way you engage that value so that it can take you to a place where you actually would like to go. Uh, retired Foursquare pastor and spiritual director Larry Spousta once told me that vision is what keeps you focused while values are what keep you healthy. Again, assuming that we have good values, then values will keep us healthy. So we have to be careful to make sure that we set healthy and good values as people of God. Now, let me just say for the record here that there is no verse in the Bible. This is why I haven't read to you a verse in the Bible yet, because there isn't a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt set good values. That verse doesn't exist, except Jesus is constantly talking about values, right? In fact, the Pharisees are constantly talking about values. Every time they come to him with a question or a challenge or they want to debate him about something, they are revealing their values. What are their values? We've got all these rules and regulations, and we would really like it if you would follow all of our rules and our regulations. Their value was order. Their value was performance. Their value was looking like you were a good person. And then Jesus just flips all of the script on them all the time. And he would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and that's a good clue that the next thing he's going to say is a kingdom value. Or he would say, when you pray, this is how I'd like you to pray. And then that's a good clue that the next thing that he's going to say is something that you should value because he wants you to pray about it. He wants you to ask God that this would be a reality in our lives. So in that sense, there are all kinds of recommended values in Scripture. And then there's some, some bad values seen in Scripture, and then Jesus comes in and tries to set the record straight. But the Pharisees, we know, were so committed to their values that they were willing to kill a man in order to maintain their values. And I wonder if as a local church in America, we would be wonder, willing to live our own lives with that same intensity, but for God's values. Not that we're going to go running around killing people for our values, but understanding that God laid down his own life, and maybe we also would be willing to lay down ours to see God's kingdom values realized, right? Are we willing to be that committed to God's kingdom values? Now, I think that you can determine good values by uh, what people would say to you if they were completely honest about their actions, right? Like in an unhealthy church, you might hear people say things like, we arrive when we're ready, not necessarily when church begins. This is an unhealthy church. If you feel like I'm stepping on your toes, just join the healthy church culture and show up. The church starts at 10. Um, but I know I'm not saying this about you. Saying this about an unhealthy church. Uh, in an unhealthy church, you might people express a value by saying something like, we allow convenience to drive our service and our commitment more than our calling. Uh, we might, you know, in an unhealthy church, hear something like, we don't do conflict. With sub-statements like, we'll talk about you before we ever talk with you. Or things like, when it gets harder, uncomfortable, or too political, or not political enough it's really easy to leave this place. Those would be values of an unhealthy church or an unhealthy heart. Now, um, 
you might imagine that that would be a really unhealthy church culture because values drive our culture. Now, in a, in a healthy church, you might hear things like, we love to worship God with our song and also with our lives. You might hear people in a healthy church say things like, uh, we do what it takes to build and maintain healthy relationships. Or we don't have to agree about everything in order to worship God together. Right? Those might be expressions of a healthy culture and a healthy value. So again, our values, both spoken and unspoken, will drive our culture. And this is true about every single local church, including the one you're sitting in right now. And so we feel like it's really, really important that we would remember our values. So at, at Life Church, we have four value statements. These are core value statements. What that means when we say core values is that we tried to drill all the way down as low as we possibly could to find the things that we want to build our entire church culture on. Now, the reason why this is important is because unity is important. And the reason this is important to talk about at the end of 2021 is because unity in the local church has been under attack big time. So we feel like this is really, really important for us to talk about. Not to say this is how every church should behave and this shouldn't be the culture of every single church, but to say because we value unity and we think God more than us values unity among the body of Christ, we want you to be able to know what kind of church you're a part of so that you can decide, do I really want to be a part of this church? And if you are, what it looks like for you to be in unity here. And by the way, the subtext of that commentary is that if you've discovered or are about to discover through this sermon that you want to be a part of the kingdom of God but not this local church, let us know. We would love to help you find a church where you are called and can partner. That's how committed we are to unity in the body of Christ. Okay? All right. Okay, so I want to share with you four core value statements that we have, and the first one is this, that at Life Church we say that we are people of the Word. Now, uh, this value is expressing really one thing that sounds like two things, and let me explain what I mean by that. There are, there are two Greek words that are often translated into the English word word. That's the word logos and the word rhema. Logos means the written word of God and rhema means the spoken word of God. And so when we say that we are people of the word, we mean that we are people of the written word of God and that we are people of the spoken word of God. The, the written word of God is your, is your Bible and that doesn't change. God has not changed his mind about any of the things that he wrote in there. The truth is most of the time we just don't understand what he wrote in there when we act like he has changed his mind. But we also believe that God speaks prophetically to his people. We'll talk about that in just a second. I want you to understand this. God makes it clear in Scripture, which we believe is the highest authority, that Jesus himself is the Word of God. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. We believe that you cannot know God unless you know Jesus, and you cannot know Jesus unless you know his Word. Which means that if you don't read the Bible, then you don't have a relationship with God. Hmm. Paul digs deeper into this in 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the written word of God is sourced and inspired by God himself. 
And Jesus would call being people of the word, Jesus would call that abiding in his word. In fact, he says that in John 8. He says, if you abide in my word, means to frame your whole life in my word. Then he says, then you're my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's pretty good. So to be people of the word means that we are people who are submitted to Scripture, that that's our highest standard and call. Amen? But we also believe that Jesus is still speaking to us, that he has written the word and that he's still speaking to us prophetically. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 16 that he says, there's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. So when the spirit of truth comes, this is, this is the third person of the Trinity, the, the person of God that we call the Holy Spirit. He's just as much God as the Father and the Son. And he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future, and he will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. So the Holy Spirit, who is also God speaks God's word to us, to his people. The Holy Spirit is our source for wisdom in this world. And, I mean, you need wisdom in this world, right? And he's our source for knowledge and understanding the Bible. The, the scriptures cannot be understood just by our human understanding. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures, in fact, none of us are smart enough to fully understand God's Word. You only do because of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. We call that things like prophecy. We call that a, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. If you really break down, uh, you can go to the Bible college class that I'm teaching called Spiritual Gifts, and we'll take a week on each of those and define for you what that means. But essentially, it means that God speaks to us the rhema word, he is speaking something fresh to us by his Holy Spirit. But notice the source of what the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Jesus and Paul and everyone else who would talk to us about the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture will always say to us, the Holy Spirit will teach us the word. The Holy Spirit will tell us what the Father is saying. So what's the source? God. The same source as the written word. Now, so it sounds like we would say two different things when we say that we're people of the word, but we're really just saying one thing. We're people of God's word, the word. We're committed to reading and obeying the Logos word, the written word, the Bible, and we're committed to hearing and obeying the rhema word, the spoken words of the Holy Spirit, which are fresh insights, fresh knowledge, and fresh wisdom for our daily and very normal lives. But, but thirdly, to tie all of this together, is that not only we are committed to the Logos and the Rhema, but we are committed to testing every Rhema by the Logos. What that means is God will never say a thing to you by the Holy Spirit that he didn't already say to us in Scripture. Now, he might say that to us in 2021 language or, or with, with instructions for this moment, like how Mark has heard by the Holy Spirit a word for a specific group of people. And so we asked him to come and we could prophesy over them and declare God's word over them. But everything that Mark has heard by the Holy Spirit today already agrees with Scripture and was rooted in it. Right? 
So the Holy Spirit will never say anything to us that God did not already say to us in his written holy word. We are people of the word, which means that everything we believe and do begins with and comes back to God's holy written word. I was so good I got a musical track accompanying that point. So here's what we understand. The Father inspires the Word, the Son embodies the Word, the Holy Spirit speaks the Word, and our job is to obey the Word. Amen? So this is our first and foundational core value, is that we are people of the Word. And our second core value is that we all belong. We're saying a few things with this core value, like all of them. We're saying more than really just one idea, uh, or we're, it's, it's a nuanced uh, idea that needs to be unpacked. When we say that we, are all, that we all belong, first and foremost, we mean that all of mankind, that every single human being that has ever lived, belongs in God's kingdom. Jesus died to save everyone. There's never been a human being that Jesus looked at and was like, oh, I don't know. Never once. Never one person that said, well, they sinned too much for me to have a desire for the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that just because God loves every single person, that every single person is automatically in God's kingdom. He gave us something called free will so that his love can actually mean something to us when we choose him because he first chose us, right? That whole idea right there will take an entire sermon series just to unpack. But we really, really believe that God wants every single person to be a part of his kingdom. We, the human race, all belong in God's kingdom. Which means that when you encounter someone who is not living inside of God's kingdom, they haven't figured out something that you haven't figured out yet. They're just living outside of God's intention for their life. We all belong inside God's kingdom. And our hope is that every single person would figure that out and find belonging as children of God, like we have. That doesn't make us better. It makes us missionaries. Right? This is also a value of the culture of our local church community. Community, like friendship, is built around shared interests. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis wrote, the typical expression of opening a friendship would be something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. That's how C.S. Lewis describes a friendship starting. It's the moment where you discover you share something in common. Notice he doesn't say everything in common, right? Some of my closest friends in the whole world are different than me, but we have shared interests. Community uh, is demonstrated really clearly in the book of Acts. Uh, Let me just remind you briefly that in the book of Acts, chapter 2, all of the believers devoted themselves to one thing. To, to, well, really, I guess to two things that were partnering with one. Well, really, like to ten things that were all about one thing. Well, really, about an entire lifestyle that was all about one thing. Let me just read it to you. It says, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Oh, this list is getting long. It says, as they did this, a deep sense of awe came over all of them. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, so they were also committed to the work of the Holy Spirit miraculously in people's lives, in the community, and also in the local church. Verse 44 says, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had, so they were committed to shared resource. Uh, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Wow. They worship together. By the way, I don't really have time to dig into this, but 
Um, I don't know that the modern day expression is for us to stand up and say, so every local church member sh sell everything that you have and give that into the coffers of Life Church and we'll just dole that out as, as it's needed. But that we would live with a heart, ex that was an appropriately, a culturally appropriate expression for them in that moment. And one day that might be an, a culturally appropriate expression for us again, maybe. But today I believe that God would say, live in such a way that you don't own, but that you steward what you have. And that whatever you have, when God would call you to give, that you give to those in need. And that if you're a part of a local church with a group of people and you find out that you have something that somebody else needs and you can give what is needed, that you would give it. That's what it looks like for us to be in community. It says they worship together at the temple each day. They met in homes. They worship together at the temple each day. These people worship together daily. You know what? It was, it, it's interesting how much... I'm just going to say a thing. I'm going to say a thing. I love you. But it is shocking to me how we can say we are a part of a church and not even worship weekly together. Okay, I said it. I'm going to move on. They, worship, they worshiped. Let us be like this, Lord. Let us worship together daily. We meet in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all of the people, which is the people outside of the community. So they weren't so crazy that the people who weren't Christians hated them. In fact, they were so compelling that it says each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So there was something about their culture where they resisted isolation. They shared everything in common as needs were as needs came up. They met those needs within themselves, and then they were they lived in such a way that those outside of their own community actually wanted to be inside of the community. And so they were being saved every day just so that they could be a part of this radical community. Life Church, when we say we all belong, we mean we all belong. We want every single person to be a part of God's kingdom. And within this local church, we want every single person to feel like they belong. Now, that takes work on your part just as much as it takes work on my part. Amen? To say we all belong means that we lean into a community of shared interest and shared resource. Our hearts and our hands are always open to one another, and the door is always open to outsiders as we welcome them in to become insiders. No matter how long it takes for them to feel like they've become insiders, that we would welcome them towards Jesus with us. But, but we all belong is also a radical statement about who gets to belong. Jesus shared a story about belonging in Luke, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 10. I won't take time to share this entire story, but we know this story is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a story where Jesus actually sets the hero up of this story as a person who the Jews would have seen as their enemy. And he was the one who acted like a good neighbor. Right? And if you don't know the story of the Good Samaritan, go read Luke chapter 10, starting in verse, really verse 25. Uh, this, this Jewish traveler gets mugged, and the Samaritan, the enemy of God's people, comes and is the most righteous and loving person in the entire story. Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And his answer is, the person who helps. And this is what it would look like for us to live as all belong. Jesus is intentionally starving out the culture of otherizing and, and compartmentalization of our lives. And he says that heaven welcomes everybody, no matter who you are and no matter who they are. 
To say we all belong is to strive to build a church where we resist making enemies and we welcome everyone as a neighbor. Amen? All right, I've got a lot more to say about that, but for sake of time, let's move on. So we've heard that we are all people of the word and that we all belong. And our third core value is that we are committed to growth. Now, growth is actually an expectation of God's people. In 2 Peter 1.18, it says you must grow, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this core value, again, is saying two things. Number one, we are committed to the growth of God's kingdom. If we say that all people belong, when we say we are committed to growth, then we are committed to doing the work to grow his kingdom. Jesus gave us this mandate. We call it the Great Commission. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go and make disciples. And then teach those disciples to do the things I taught you. What's one of the things that Jesus taught you? To go and make disciples. So at Life Church, we say that we're not just interested in making disciples. We're about the work of making disciple-making disciple-makers. Because it's not enough for you just to come and get fed. We come and get fed so we can go and feed. Right? So we are disciple-making disciple-makers as we are committed to growth. Now, I, I just want to tell you, we are committed to the growth of the local church. We're not sorry for that. I know that there's a lot of push for uh, size to be the most important thing about the church, and I'm not saying that we're only successful once we reach a certain number of people who attend our church, but I am saying there's a lot of empty seats in our sanctuary, and you know a lot of people who don't know Jesus, and I don't know that they'll get saved just because they come and hear a sermon from me. I don't know that I'm that good. No one is that good. But I do wonder if we could partner together to be unapologetically about the growth of the local church, this local church, and every other local church that preaches the gospel of Jesus. Amen? I love sending people to other people's churches. I love doing that. I love it when people are like moving out of town and if they'll, they'll, they'll talk with me about where they're going. I love being able to say, let me help you find a church in the place where you're going to be. I love it when the church grows. We should, we should not apologize for the church growing. But we have to be really careful making that the only part of our conversation. Because I think a lot of times we get so laser focused on the growth of the number of people and we forget about the growth of the actual people. So when we say that we are committed to growth, yes, of course, it, it should almost go without saying, but let's say it. We are about growing the body of Christ through evangelism. But we also have to be about the growth of individual disciples. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrased Paul's heart in, the, in his message when he says uh, if in Ephesians 4.14, no prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll, we'll not tolerate babes in the wood or small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love like Christ in everything. So growing up in our faith is an expectation for followers of Jesus. In fact, the author of Hebrews got kind of exacerbated about this. And in Hebrews 5, he says, you've been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. I don't know how long those people had been believers, 
But however long you've been a believer, I wonder if you've crossed the threshold where Paul, we think it may have been Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews, if, if he would say to you, you've been a believer for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. I didn't write these words. But listen to the rest of the thought. He says, instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. This is such a burn. In verse 13, it says, for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. You understand what he's saying? That if you're still, if, if you have not grown up in your understanding of Scripture since the time that you met Jesus, he is literally saying mature people are the ones who actually know the difference between right and wrong. So, so if your relationship with God is just about not going to hell when you die, then, then the author of Hebrews and I think the Holy Spirit of God himself would look to you today and say, it is time to grow up. I believe in you so much more than the, than the, than the little baby faith that you're settling for. Please don't hear that actually as an insult, but as an invitation. God believes that there is something better and more for you. And, and one of the markers of that is he says, you should be teaching other people by now. Which circles back around that if we're committed to growth, we should commit to growing up in our understanding of Scripture so that we can do what? Grow the kingdom. See other people grow up into the kingdom of God. Now, remember Peter who told us about the, the growing in the grace and the knowledge, right? The first Peter verse. Well, in second Peter, he writes another letter. In second Peter chapter three, he says, I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends, be on guard so that you will not be carried away by the errors of the wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, and now he's going to repeat himself. He says, rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, growing older is inevitable. Growing up takes work. And Jesus would invite us to be the kind of church that would not just come here and get older together, but that we would grow up together. Well, and I'm not saying that, by the way, as a guy who's grown all the way up. I've got a lot of growing to do. Ask my wife. I've got a ton of growing left to do, but let's do that together. Amen? So when we say that we are committed to growth, we mean that we are a community of disciple-making disciple-makers, that we are disciples of Jesus who are growing in the grace, of no grace and knowledge of Jesus, that as we grow up, we also go out to share the love of Jesus with others, and then also that we commit to helping others grow as disciples as we continue to grow ourselves. That our growth is not just about us, but it's not also just about them. It's about all of that together. Amen? So we know that we can't grow unless we first commit to God's word and, uh, and also to God's people. So you can see how our core values begin to build, right? We are people of the word, we all belong, and we are committed to growth. And then finally, we are living on purpose. Uh, this final core value, it, it feels to me as I think about our values that it it really strengthens and reinforces the other three. 
first, I, I think that this core value would say that God has made you and he's given you a specific purpose. This idea is rooted in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It says, we are his workmanship. I love the translation that says, you are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. For us to do. He created you with good works, with forethought, and intentionality for you to actually do those things. That's interesting. So to live into being the masterpiece that God has created us, we have to first discover and then actually do the purpose that God has given for each of our lives. We believe that God has given you a purpose. And we are committed to learning God's overall purpose for our lives and then working together to accomplish it. And the purpose for Kristen's life is going to be different than the purpose for Marcus's life. And both of those purposes matter. And we need both of them to realize their purpose. Jesus told us his overall purpose, his overarching purpose for the entire body of Christ. In Luke chapter 4, he stands in the temple, he opens a scroll, uh, and, and he reads in, in synagogue one day this prophetic declaration, and he says this as if it's his own mission. He's saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim to the captives that they will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I love the moment after this that Jesus sits down and everybody's staring at him, and he looks at the crowd who's all staring at him after he read this, and he goes, oh yeah, that is fulfilled in your sight today. Jesus is a baller, right? He, he reads the prophetic declaration about the work and the ministry and the purpose of the Messiah, and he goes, yeah, my purpose, that's me. And then what we know about the work in the ministry of Jesus is that he handed that same purpose over to his followers. This is our purpose, that the Lord has anointed us to bring the good news to the poor. He sent us to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So we know that the ultimate purpose for every single follower of the way of Jesus is to partner with God to see other people set free in the name of Jesus. That's the big picture. Hopefully that's why you're here. Because you were set free. Because someone did the purpose on purpose to you. Right? But we also understand that there's a purpose for every single moment of life. So when we say we're living on purpose, we mean we're going to figure out God's big, big picture purpose for the whole church. I'm going to try to figure out God's purpose for my whole life. And then I'm also going to live with intentionality in every moment of my life. Because we're spirit-filled people, we believe that God is going to tell us by his Holy Spirit what we should do in every single moment. So this value means that we value every moment of our lives. And we're living to accomplish great things, and we treat every single moment like a great opportunity. To, to say we live on purpose means that we're not negative about stuff. 
I was talking to Pastor Mark just this last week, and he had gone through a particularly rough kind of a month and some stuff going on that, that I was just talking to him. Hey, how, how are you doing? What were your, some of your reflections about all of that? And, and he was telling me about how there were a couple of moments, because he's a human being still, and, and there were a couple of moments where he started feeling like he was getting a little frustrated. And then he said, but you know what? I just decided to reset my focus and see this thing as an opportunity rather than a point of frustration. And they just flipped the script for him. Now, all of a sudden, it was an opportunity to be a minister, to be a blessing, uh, to have a good attitude. And I just was so thankful that I have friends in my life and pastors in our local church who set the tone that they see life as an opportunity. You know why? Because Mark lives on purpose with intentionality about the moments that he finds himself in. Uh, if you wanted to read Ephesians chapter 4, you would be able to find ways that Paul describes what it should look like in the larger context of the local church for people to live with intentionality. He describes how God has given gifts to the church. They look like apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and pastors, or we, we would use the word shepherds there, uh, and then also teachers. And, and the reason that he gave these gifts for the church in, in Ephesians 4.12, it says that this, these gifts were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching or by human cunning with cleverness and techniques of deceit or social media, or politics. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way. It's almost like the same guy wrote all these books. <laughs> but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of that. We could do an entire sermon series just on what Paul is talking about here. But let me just explain to you, when Paul writes about the human body in Scripture, he's actually talking about the local church. He's talking about how you are a part of the body, and you are a part of the body, and I'm a part of the body, and if we all play our part, then God knits us together so that the body can do what the body is supposed to do, and so that we can grow up together, as he says, building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So Paul describes the purpose of the church in, in ways like this, to empower unique contributions of every believer, to establish and maintain sound doctrine, unity, and love, to ensure the health of the entire community, and to empower a culture where life is different and better than it is outside the church. Well, this means that the church is not just meant to be a social club. The, the, the church is not just meant to be four songs and a TED talk. That the church isn't even the moment that you find yourself in right now. It's the people that you find yourself with right now. It's you. It's us together. Hopefully more ministry happens in and through Life Church during the rest of the week outside of... It. If your idea is that Life Church 
starts and ends between 12 and 1 on Sunday, then you are vastly underestimating the purpose of Life Church and the identity of Life Church. Life Church is not me, it is you, it is us. And our purpose is to build one another up in unity, which takes a lot of work. A lot of work. Life Church and the local church of God is designed to be a community of believers who are growing and helping others grow. If a church like that, like the one that Paul describes in Ephesians 4, were to set core values, they might sound something like, we are people of the word. We all belong. We are committed to growth. And we are living on purpose. Core values say a lot about a person. They say a lot about a culture. They tell you who we are, how we intend to live, where we intend to go, the types of things that we will and will not do. Core values are simultaneously an invitation into a community and boundary lines for that community. Right? Remember the bowling alley, the bumper lanes? Come and bowl. Here are the boundaries. Here's what we will and won't do. Now, I I share this with you again so that you can know and remember who we are called to be as a church. So that you can help us cultivate a culture that, that looks like these values. Because you are people of the word. You believe that we all belong. You are committed to growth. You are living on purpose. And we share this so that you can decide if you want to be a part of this church, but more than that, so that you can help us build a unified culture. So that when others would come in here, they would know what we're about without having to listen to a sermon about the core values, which only happens maybe once a year. Except almost every Sunday it happens. Right? And then maybe on Thursday, when you take people out to coffee, it happens. It's because you're reading the Word. Ultimately, the purpose of this, uh, of asking you to join with us in remembering our core values is unity. And as I said at the beginning, I don't know anything that's under attack in the local church more than the unity of the body of Christ. I don't know that we will know how to unify this church with other local churches if we don't start by talking about unity within this local church. And so I'm not saying this because I feel like we have a unity problem here. I'm just saying this because I want you to have language for how we do unity here so that when we talk to people who are a part of other churches, we can say, let's be in unity with you as well. Because at the end of all of it, aren't we all about the same thing? I mean, we didn't pull these core values out of a hat. We pulled them out of Scripture. And so any other body of Christ, local gathering of the body of Christ, that would also root their values, however they would call them, whatever they would talk about, uh, whatever their language would be, any other local church that says we are also about the Word of God and the movement of God in our lives and through our lives out into the world, any other local church that looks and sounds like that, we could say, oh, your family. Oh, you might do Thanksgiving differently than we do, but you're family, right? You might sing songs that I don't know, but we're family, same team. And we can't start saying same team to the churches outside of this church until we have language together to say same team inside this church. 
And so after the two years that we've been through, we felt like it would be really, really important for us just to remember our own language. So our response to a teaching like this should obviously begin with prayer. So why don't we take a moment and unify our hearts in prayer? If you're physically able and you would like to join me in a moment of unified prayer, I would love and I'd be honored if you would join me in standing to your feet. And if you don't, if you stay sitting, no one will look at you sideways. No one will be offended by that. But I wonder if we could take a moment in unified prayer. And as has become kind of a new practice for us in this last quarter of this year, we will put a, a, a prayer for you. And we'll read that together in a moment. But, but can we, before we unify our words in prayer, can we unify our hearts in prayer? Just right where you're at in this moment, would you pray... Whatever your response to this sermon would be, sure. But would you begin with me by giving some praise to God? Remember, God reminded us during worship today to remember the joy of our salvation. Can you take a moment, as we've talked about some of our core values, would you take a moment to thank God for his word, for the ways that the word of God has impacted and changed your life? Can you thank God for his church, the global church and the local church? Even in the middle of all of the smudges on the local church, can you thank God for the local church? Could you begin maybe to ask God in your own words as we unify our hearts in prayer to begin to ask God for the grace to grow in the areas where you personally need to grow? And maybe you ask God also that he would reveal his purpose to you for your life if you don't already know it, and if you do, that you would have the blessing of God and the favor of God in your life as you walk in your purpose on purpose. God, we, we present our hearts to you today in prayer. Our hearts are for unity, that you would unify your church, this church, and all of your church. Thank you, God. We praise you, God. Everything we do is for your glory. Grow your church and grow us, your church. Would you join me in praying these words together out loud there on the screen behind me? We pray this in unity. We say, God, help us to become the people you have in mind for Life Church to be. Give us a passion for your word and help us to obey. Give us open hearts and hands so that others will find belonging among us. Help us to grow your kingdom as we work with you to grow our own hearts. Reveal your purpose to us for your church, for our entire lives, and in each moment, as we pray these values, we are saying that above everything else, we value you. We love you and pray that our lives together would honor your name. Amen.